Howdy folks and welcome to the Six Ranch Podcast. On today's episode, we're starting a series on the things that trout eat and how that translates into fly tying and fly fishing with my good friend Kyle Bratcher, a fish biologist and owner of Sigfo Flies. We're joined later on by a special guest, Deputy Paul Pagano, owner and operator of Flyside Angling, an outfitting service for trout, steelhead, and smallmouth bass. Get ready to learn about one of the most marvelous bugs out there, the mayfly. Marie Sharps. What's Marie Sharps? Hot sauce. You wouldn't know. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound good to me. Because <laughs> it's hotter than pepper. Yeah, and it's so embarrassing. Like, we had dinner last night. We had pizza from Embers, and it was just um, pepperoni pizza on white sauce. Like, that's, that's my one pizza that I get from there. And uh, Danielle, of course, got... Uh, Got jalapenos on half of hers, on her half the pizza, <laughs> uh, and I ate an adjacent piece that was just like it had jalapeno slices as a neighbor. And I was like, "Woo!" It just sweated over. Can't do it. <laughs> I can't do it. Well, sweet. I want to talk about mayflies. So, just to just to get into this. I'm sitting down here with Kyle Bratcher. Kyle is a wildlife biologist with a degree in wildlife biology. And that alone makes you just a total anomaly within our entire generation. Like, you studied something in college and then went into that profession? How dare you? <laughs> you know? I'm over here with a with a degree in words and, um, yeah. Yeah. And then I chose to use it to study fish. Exactly. So, a little out of the wheelhouse. So, what is your, what's your day job? Okay, so I'm a fish biologist. What um, does that even mean? I do different studies on fish in the area that I work and um, manage fisheries, uh, manage different types of fish, pretty much everything. So, I do lots of stuff pretty much across the board. If it has anything to do with the fish in the area, I have something to do with it. Yeah, and that's, it's a big area, what you're talking about, and it's a lot of different species. Sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, a lot of it focuses on anadromous fish, um, trout, you know, the game species. But we do do some stuff with not um, the non-game species and the small fish that nobody thinks about, like dace and sculpin, and that people don't really know much about. So Sure, and they're really critical to these anadromous species. Sure. Yeah. So I think of it in terms, whenever you're managing one species, you have to think about what they're eating, right? Absolutely. So if, if I'm a cattle rancher... I better know some things about grass. Yeah. Well, and it, it, it's really the entire ecology of the stream that you're looking at, you know, and that ecology changes from top to bottom. So, you know, we start talking about, well, today we're going to talk about mayflies, but you're talking about the sculpin and the stoneflies and everything that those fish eat from top to bottom. Or if it's in still water, you know, they might be, there's a whole different game there. And so. So top is like top of the food chain. Well, I mean, like top to bottom, like uh, headwaters. Okay. Um, so, like actual physical location. Um, you know, like we're right here in the Wallowa Mountains, and way up high, you got real cold streams. And as they go down, the geomorphology changes. You get into the valley; it's more productive, warmer, and it's a whole different ecology. And so, understanding where those fish are at different times of the year and what they're eating, you know, it all plays into it. So, and how you manage those fish and how those how those fish go through their life cycle. Are mayflies an important food, food yeah, source for absolutely. fish? absolutely. So mayflies are probably one of the top two food sources for fish. 
realistically speaking, depending on where you are, it varies. Um, like I said, again, depending on if you're low in a system or high in a system, or if you're in a lake or if you're in the Midwest or, but you know, mayflies and coronamids are probably the top two food sources for fish. And what are, what are coronamids? Coronamids are going to be your midges, mosquitoes, mosquitoes, yeah, um, gnats, just stuff yeah. like that. They're, and they, you know, actually technically a, um, I think crane flies are technically a coronamid, if I recall. Yeah, I think they are. Um, because so, they have a larval phase. Yeah, and so they are, you know, they're going to be, typically need some finer sediments for them to be real successful. So you'll see more of them in lower elevations than you will in higher elevations. I mean, they'll still be there. And then in lakes where you have some deposition in the bottom. And so, you know, as you move down in the system, you'll see more coronamids. And in lakes, you'll see more coronamids in the diet of trout but mayflies are still going to be in those areas and if the if the water's clean and those mayflies can live there they're pretty pretty sensitive to pollution and stuff like that so you know if there's good habitat for those mayflies they're going to be there and they're going to be a big chunk of those the trout diet so yeah let's just get into mayflies so a mayfly starts out as an egg right absolutely and how small is that egg oh god i don't even know how like i can't put that in terms but if you think of a mayfly they're you know a lot of them are running 10 centimeters or less uh, maybe a little bigger depending on which species we're talking about or which you know it's going to be hard to talk about actual species getting down because sure. there's more than three thousand species in the world with an estimate of a thousand still out there to describe so yeah uh, we don't you know you talk about them in more of a large scale you know orders and families yeah. and stuff you know, mayflies are going to lay between 100 and 3,000 eggs, depending on which one they are. And so when you think about a an animal that small, how small that egg has to be to have 3,000 of them. Right. So we have this little tiny bug that is so light that it can land on the surface of the water and just remain in the surface film and not even mm -hmm. penetrate or get its feet wet. And then it's producing up to 3,000 eggs. So mm -hmm. when we're saying microscopic... I mean, very small. So a mayfly egg is not an important food source to trout. No. Not at all. No. You know, you might have some of the fry and stuff getting a hold of them once in a while, but uh, they're not going to be the main the main yeah. contributor of protein. So, And it would really have to be in, still in a cluster form to even be yeah. visible for a fish to, yeah. to get a hold of it. Unless it's, you know, it happens to catch them in some kind of filter feeding process. So, right. Are there some trout that filter feed? A lot of a lot of salmonids do. Um, so like kokanee or filter feeding, mm -hmm. um, you know, they use those gill rakers. And so at really small stages, they'll do some filter feeding. And gill, raker, and gill rakers are basically just, well, I mean, they almost look like Velcro or something yeah. like that on their gills that help yeah. them sort food out of the water. Yeah. And, and so, you know, some fish like kokanee, they'll feed pelagically and they'll pretty much do that their entire life. Um, trout will do that early and then switch over. And start eating bigger prey more by sight. And so. Okay. So they're starting out as, you know, in a family, they've got 2,999 siblings and they got laid in the, in the surface film of the water uh -huh. and they are tumbling down towards the substrate, um, the bottom of the, of the riverbed. Yeah. So there's a few things that happen. They can be, they can be laid in different ways. So some of them will be attached to substrate um, by the adult or they'll be just deposited on the surface and then they'll sink and then you're looking at a few days to a few months for those eggs to hatch even up to a year depending on what latitude you're at up to a year for them just so, to hatch yeah so there's a process called diapause and it's more common in the um, 
Arctic regions. Um, so if you go up into northern Alaska, there's still some mayflies up that far. And those eggs will basically get so cold that they'll just stop developing and they'll just sit until the water temps. So everything with the mayfly and their development is really based on temperature. So it's really dependent on the temperature. So mayflies are, they're not really found at the poles and they're absent from Antarctica. But as you move towards the tropics, they still exist and their life cycles become much faster in those areas. So like our, our mayflies, they'll take up to three years to develop in the nymphal stage. And then in the tropics, it's like three months. And then they'll just rip through these uh, life cycles really quickly. But as you move towards the poles, that life cycle gets longer and longer because it's so temperature dependent. And then do we see a dimorphism in mayflies where as you get closer to the poles, they um, get bigger? Or is that not necessarily true? I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that's it's, mostly in mammals. Yeah. Because um, if we look at it, like the biggest mayfly is the hexagenia, right? Mm-hmm. And we have those in the Great Lakes. And so you'd expect that your biggest mayfly would be in the tropics if if uh, that was the case. But we have these giant mayflies that are around the Great Lakes and it gets pretty damn cold right. um, in the winter there. So Interesting. Okay. So here we are. We've waited for a period of, you know, three months to over a year just to hatch out of this egg. Then what happens? Um, and then you have a nymph. And so uh, these nymphs, like I said, they'll develop depending on the temperature and they'll go through as many as like 20, um, I don't remember what the term of it is, but they're 20 changes, 20 molts basically as they grow. And so if you look, if you go out and you're fishing and you pull up rocks, you're going to see um, nymphs that are of different sizes. And so those are different age classes. They may have been born a couple different year, you know, year sure. apart. So you're going to have different cohorts, but they'll look the same, but they're going to be a different sizes because they're working through that process of getting to that two or three years before they hatch, unless you're in a place that they're faster. So, so as, as a nymph, they have an exoskeleton, so mm-hmm. they, don't, they don't have bones. Um, they're an invertebrate. So all their, all their structure, all their armor is on the outside mm-hmm. of their body. As well as their gills. As well as their gills. And so your, your nymphs are going to actually fall into a few different categories. And it's not really that important as an angler to know what they are. Um, a little bit. But they're, they typically categorize them as burrowers, crawlers, clingers, and swimmers. Mm-hmm. And so some nymphs do swim and they'll have a little different body shape. And we can get into that a little bit later when we talk about time flies. But it, it depends on what their life history is and how they are shaped. And so they'll be a little different shape depending on which life strategy they follow. Right. And sort of the, the design of their feet and mm-hmm. um, length of claws their, and things and like that. their body shape can be more round or more flat depending on what kind of environments they live in. And Gotcha. Okay. I mean, this is already a really fascinating animal, right? <laughs> uh-huh. Not an animal, but an insect. So with an exoskeleton, the way I like to explain this to people is it's sort of like a pair of jeans. If you get bigger, you can't wear the same pair of jeans, right? You've got yeah, to I've experienced and... some of that recently. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, welcome to your 30s. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's that's what's going on when we're talking about molting is these things actually get so big that they break their own exoskeleton, crawl out of it, and then the skin that they have hardens up and it gives them some space to continue to grow and, mm-hmm. and accommodate that space. Mm-hmm. Truly amazing. So this thing waited for X amount of days, weeks, months, hatched, and now it's going to break out of its own skin in order to get bigger Mm-hmm. Up to 20 different times. Yeah. And it's, and it's, you think about it, it's, there's a lot of animals that do this. You talk about crabs and, 
and basically anything with an exoskeleton goes through this process at some point, right? And it's pretty, it's a pretty ancient, like, thing that has evolved a long time ago. I mean, mayflies evolved between 300 and 350 million years ago. So, wow. and you think about, you think about a sturgeon, that's like 240 to 300 million years, somewhere in that ballpark. So, you know, we always call sturgeon dinosaurs, but uh, mayflies showed up in the fossil record before sturgeon did. So that's, if we go that far back, I mean, help me out. That's Pangea, right? We, I, yeah, I don't know on the geology of that, but yeah, I mean, you're talking, you know, a lot of continental drift has happened in that time period. So, yeah. Yeah. Which would sort of help explain why there are mayflies all around the world today. Yeah. They existed all over this ancient continent Absolutely. at that time. Yeah. Okay. So now it's going to start getting weird. So we busted through all of these nymph stages and we got bigger and bigger and bigger. Now they're going to hatch again. This is what um, anglers refer to as a hatch. But really, when they hatch is when they went from an egg form to a nymph form, right? Yeah. yeah. But what anglers call a hatch is them going from a nymph phase to the sub imago phase. Yes. Yeah. And they'll and they'll spend the truth about mayflies. They spend ninety nine percent of their life as a nymph, right? Yeah, or more. And yeah, or more. And then and then they hatch, as we're going to call it in quotation marks. They'll do it a variety of ways. So the nymph will. They can either, some of them will form a gas bubble under their exoskeleton that makes them buoyant. How do they do that? I have no idea. Because <laughs> <laughs> they have gills to be able to diffuse yeah. oxygen. Yeah. And they're a great bioindicator of oxygen in the yeah. water. My, my guess would be it's some kind of respiration. I mean, just like we form gas all over our bodies, you know, or um, maybe it's a breakdown of food. And they, but I don't, I don't know how that actually happens. But, but um, somehow they manage to create gas, yeah. trap it. Between their thorax and their head somewhere? Yeah. And so when we talk about people tie flashback pheasant tails and stuff like that, and that's kind of what some of that's supposed to represent is this bubble forming because you can see it and it'll sparkle in the sun because you create a, you know, prism underwater basically sure. with that bubble. And so they'll become more buoyant and they'll float to the surface and then hatch out on the surface. Or some of these, some of these will, um, they'll crawl, actually crawl out of the water. Yep. Um, and they'll get up on the side. And a lot of time you'll see the, the done form, as we'll call it, as anglers will call it, you'll be walking down the, the river and you'll see all these mayflies sitting on the bank. And that's typically what those are. And the fish won't necessarily be able to hone in on those as well because these fish, or they just crawl out. You know, they may get blown into the river once in a while and you can target them then. But for the most part, they're a little harder to get at for fish. So Okay. So done, D-U-N, that's what anglers are calling this phase of their life once yeah. they've once the nymph has made it to air somehow, whether mm -hmm. he swam or crawled. Yeah. And this is like one of the most remarkable like miracles that I think occurs in the animal, in the not animal kingdom, in the insect kingdom. They're an animal. Um, they're an animal. Yeah. They're okay. still in kingdom animalia. Okay. All right. Thank you. So I think it's truly amazing that these nymphs can make it to the surface. They, they've been living underwater their entire life they make it to the surface they break out of this exoskeleton again and now they have freaking wings yeah and it's and it's incredible that in a matter of seconds they're functioning as a nymph and then in a matter of seconds they're functioning in a whole different body form like they don't look anything like a nymph no not at all and it's a different different animal but i i uh, stayed up one night um on a river last summer and watched a um, october caddis crawl out of the water onto a rock and hatch and it's just in 
right in front of my eyes in a matter of 30 seconds. And it's a totally different animal. It's the same thing with mayflies. They're just, it's like, how can you function in this form? And then two seconds later be a completely different animal. Yeah. And, and their wings sort of unfurl and, mm-hmm. and um, become rigid so that they can actually start using them to fly. So yeah. how soon and, from them getting their wings out and crawling out of that exoskeleton, can this thing actually start flying? Well, some of it, some of them it's seconds. Seconds. And some of them it's minutes to, you know, more minutes. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, quite a while. And some of them will drift to the bank and some of them will just fly off and then they'll get on some vegetation and hang out for a while. I've been on rivers and it's one of the best things ever when you actually hit a hatch right and you're just watching these things come single file down the river and the fish start keying in on them. And, you know, it's just a whole, whole different thing. You're learning so much at that point that watching these fish switch from in the, in a matter of minutes from feeding under the surface to just in a rhythm on top of the surface, eating these things as they come down the conveyor belt. So that's in that, that type of feeding and we'll get into this later, but if we wanted to sound a little bit more professional, instead of calling it a hatch, would we call it emerging? Yeah. Yeah. So when they're emerging from their their exoskeleton as a nymph into an adult, which they still have an exoskeleton as an adult with wings, uh-huh. um, it's just a completely different shape. Now they yeah. have... Basically another molt that they went through. It's yeah. just their... A different molt. They come out completely different on this one. So is, is the story over? Is it done? Well, no. So they're actually, depending on the species, they're going to fly off and land somewhere. And it'll be either, well, for some, some of them, it's a matter of minutes. Um, and some of them, it's a matter of days. But they'll actually molt one more time. And so that's when we go from the dun to the spinner, as the fishermen are going to call it. Scientists have a different name for it, but uh, it's not real important to get into those right now. What is it? Inigio, something like that. I-M-A-G-O, right? Yes. So I'm um, not confident sub- on how to pronounce uh, me, me it. Me <laughs> neither. I'm, like, I'm a fish. I'm a fish guy. So yeah. um, I can do Latin names for fish, but um, for these guys, it's a little different. But they, but they're going to molt again, and you'll have what we call a spinner. And so they go from when we call them a dun, their wings are still kind of opaque, and you, um, they have some color to them. And when they go to the spinner phase, they're they're pretty clear, and that's when when they're ready to get going. That's when they're so at the dun phase, their um, gonads aren't mature. And so they're still actually developing those. And then when they molt into that spinner, their gonads become mature and then it's time to mate. And so then we go into the males will actually do what they is a mating flight. It's almost a display. And if you're ever on a river and you're, and there's a bunch of mayflies around that have hatched and you'll look up in the air, you'll see them and they'll be going up and down vertically Mm -hmm. for the most part. And those are the males and they're doing a display flight and they're waiting for a female to come along. And what you'll see is all of a sudden you'll start seeing mayflies that are flying horizontally and those are the females and they'll be flying through those swarms and then the males will grasp onto the females and they'll mate in the air okay (laughs) and the males have two penises yeah what it seems excessive but (laughs) i'm not going to take it away from him i'm not sure if that's a probability thing like because the females have two openings as well, yeah, right? Yeah, well, so there's... Yeah, exactly. And so maybe it's just a better chance of getting one in. I don't know. Yeah. Um, or maybe they, maybe they get them both in every time. I don't know. But there's a... The shortest lived mayfly species from the time they hatch to the time they mate to the time they die is about five minutes. Five minutes. Five minutes. And they're more in this in south southeast the U.S. and Florida, that area. And five minutes. So you imagine coming out, landing on a branch, molting, 
flying into the air, grabbing somebody, mating, and then dying, laying your eggs and dying. You don't have much time to get it done. No. <laughs> so no. That's such an exciting way to end your life, <laughs> right? You just spent however long, a year at least, crawling around, not getting eaten on the bottom of the uh-huh. river. Like everything wants to eat you, even though their bugs eat mayfly nymphs. Uh-huh. And then you're like... Okay, temperature feels right, not too sunny. I'm heading for the top. I'm going to build up this gas bubble. All of a sudden, I'm flying around. Hey, she looks cool. Uh, I'm dead. <laughs> what? I think it's. I don't think it's, hey, she looks cool either. I think it's more like you're walking through a, a busy convention and you bump into them and you just latch on. <laughs> I don't think there's much of a, hey, it's just who you happen to run into. Yeah, there's not, not a lot of flirting going on there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well... And and then what? So we we've got a a male that just mated with a female. Sure. And as soon as that's over, does he die? Yeah. Well, they may just die, or they may continue to do that display flight. Okay. And they basically will do that until they run out of energy and die. Yep. And that's it for them because they don't have the ability to eat at this stage no. of their life. Adults don't eat. They don't have mouth parts that are even capable of eating. So, so they they cash in their mouth for their go their gonads. Yeah. And so, and then the females will lay eggs and, um, the females, it can be a few days, um, or a few minutes that they lay their eggs and then they're gone. So it just depends hmm. on the species again. So, and then some of them actually hit the water and then swim down to the bottom to lay those eggs. Yeah, they'll crawl down. They'll, crawl um, down. they'll typically land on the bank and then crawl in. It sounds like, and okay. then they'll, and they'll, and I saw some really cool pictures and doing a little bit of research for this that the mayfly was halfway into the surface film diving down to go, go lay their, lay their eggs. Yeah. But then some of them will just deposit them right on the surface. And then, yeah. And some of them will actually just sit right on the bank on the very edge of the water and deposit them on the edge of the wetted water. So now another part of this that is increasingly blowing my mind is this, this concept of natural drift that these, uh, these mayfly nymphs, you know, they, Within their rock, they only have so much food, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, twice a day, they will move to a new place to live. And because they're in a river, that movement is typically downstream. Okay. Now, some people will um, will mistake what's actually occurring during a hatch and say that the hatch is moving upstream. And to an extent, it is because the temperature that those insects need in order to emerge occurs first at the lower parts of the river system, right? But what we see in the afternoon is these bugs flying upstream, apparently. Mm -hmm. But that's because of the wind. They will actually orient and fly upstream as well. The females will. Um, The males, not so much. But the females will actually focus on flying upstream and aided by that wind. But if we look at mayflies, when they, we typically see what we call a hatch during the day, it's not typically first thing in the morning. And you and I both know from rafting rivers that first thing in the morning, the wind's not typically blowing up canyon. No, it's Um, down, if anything. Yeah, it's down canyon. And then we know in the afternoon when we're trying to push out towards the the boat launch that the wind's fighting us coming upstream. And so when we look at mayflies, you know, they're typically hatching uh, mid-morning when that wind changes. We know it from hunting too. Like you're on a mountain and you're trying to get on elk and that 10 o'clock wind starts blowing up the hill. It's the same thing in a canyon. And so we see typically seeing mayflies hatch and stuff in the 
in the morning and in the early afternoon, um, sometimes into the evening. And that's when that wind's coming up canyon typically and helping those mayflies move upstream a little bit. Okay. So to complicate matters further, they need to be laying those eggs in almost precisely the, the same spot that they landed in the river as an egg. If they go too far upstream, then eventually the whole species ends up at the headwaters. If they don't go far enough upstream, then eventually the whole species ends up in the ocean. Yeah. So they need to have conditions set so that they're flying the appropriate distance upstream and then laying their eggs in the sure. appropriate part of the water. Like, well, if you think about oh it, it's gosh. probably a bell curve. You know, some of them probably don't go very far yep. and never get back to where they original originated. Some of them probably get right to where they originated and that's the bulk of them. And then some of them are going to go to the extreme ends. You know, they catch a real windy day. They're not going to have a lot of control. Yeah. And so they're with um, some of the receding glaciers that we've seen in, in recent history. Some of the first organisms to show up right at the base of a glacier where a river comes out is mayflies. Really? Um, because they're getting blown upstream into that, into that spot. And so they're pretty good at colonizing within their own river, not so much across landscapes, yep. though they do. But they're pretty good at the, being the first ones to colonize upstream in the, in the river that they're born in. Amazing. I mean... We're, we're amazed that a salmon or a steelhead can swim out to the ocean and come mm -hmm. back and find, you know, roughly the same gravel bar to spawn in that they were born in. But we can give a salmon quite a bit more credit for intelligent design and everything else than we can this little bug. But this is a miracle bug. This isn't just any bug. This has been around for 300 million years. Mayfly we're talking about. Yeah. It's a good design. So... Trout are just eating the heck out of these things during the nymph phase, definitely during the emerging phase. That's probably when they're the most vulnerable during the done phase. Um, if they happen to blow off a branch, grass, hit the water. Or if they're one of these mayflies that just hatches right out on the surface and they yeah. have to sit there for a few minutes, they're pretty vulnerable. So. Yeah. While their wings are drying out so they can fly off. Yeah. And I, you know, coming back to this, will get into the fishing part a little more, but if I've found that. You know, they're, they can be even more vulnerable if it's kind of rough water and turbulent water because they'll get swamped sometimes. Right. You know, where if it's glassy water, then they can sit there and they're less likely to get swamped and wet again. And they have time to kind of cure, if you will, and then fly off. So interesting. Gosh. What but a it, life. But, it, but, you know, and it's it's like the classic is we will call it in biology and our strategist, you know, it's. It's like, we're going to put as many of you out there as we can, and some of you are going to make it, you yeah. know? You know, and I read one study that up to, they estimated that, it was in Norway, that up to 30 to 40% of the entire mayfly production in one year will be eaten by trout. <laughs> that's scary. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So. And dragonfly um, larvae will. Damselflies, dragonflies, they, um, stoneflies will even eat them. Really? So, yeah. So. What a bummer. <laughs> it's like your neighbors, you know? Yeah, you're just about the bottom of the food chain, actually. Yeah. So, yeah. That's so critical. Yeah. Some of them are actually carnivorous and will eat coronamids, too, though. So they're not quite the bottom. but They're hooking and jabbing. Yeah. I think that mayfly spinners are beautiful. Mm -hmm. I mean, they've got these long tails. They've got really vibrant colors. They have um, 10 body segments in their abdomen. And then they have this this beautiful two-part thorax with, with wings coming out of each portion of it. 
We've got six legs. A lot of the uh, a lot of the spinners can only use their front two legs, mm-hmm. so the other four are just like ornamental. Yeah, so I I found something interesting on that, and they were a lot of them only use the back four, and the front two are are useless. Hmm. And actually, um, I found a thing where Aristotle wrote about these in like 300 BC. Was he was writing about mayflies, and he was talking about how they walked on four four legs. Wow! And for a long time, there was apparently a bunch of mistakes made based off his writing that mayflies only had four legs. Oh, really? And, yeah. And they were saying there was this giant error, and it was like, and you, all you had to do is count, and it was like, well, no, he said they walk on four legs. He didn't huh. say they had four legs, but and back then they called them dayflies, um, and it was because of the amount of time that they lived. Right, so. lived within. Within our knowledge. The adult stage. Yeah. Yeah. Where we can see them and they're all charismatic and stuff. <laughs> but so the, the Latin is uh, ephemera terra, right? Yeah. Which ephemera, it comes from ephemeral, meaning... Um, short-lived. Short time. Yeah. And terra, meaning earth. So you know, we have, short time on we earth. We talk about ephemeral streams. Right. Um, which are streams that aren't, aren't wet at all year. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... We take all this knowledge, right? We, we've we learned that there's different types of mayflies, what they go through during their life cycle. Um, we know that they're a critical food source for trout and steelhead and salmon and everything that lives in the river is eating these things. So as a fly fisherman, what are some takeaways? Like a fly fisherman doesn't really need to know Latin, right? But you, you do need it to be able to identify the stage of this insect's life and whether trout are eating nymphs or eating emergers mm-hmm. or eating duns or spinners. So how do you do that as a fisherman? You walk up to a creek you've never been on before. Well, so for the most part, mayflies are everywhere. Sands a few places, but you always have a good bet that fish are eating mayflies if you show up somewhere. In the nymph form, typically, is probably when they're most accessible year-round. So, uh, hatches, as we like, as we call them, they're typically year-round except for the dead of winter. You're not going to see very many mayfly hatches during the dead of winter unless you're on a, a warm spring creek of some kind where they're able to still get away with it. And so, for me, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to walk up to a stream, depending on the time of day, and I'm probably going to just throw on some nymphs, a pheasant tail, a Frenchie, something like that, and just go for it. I'm kind of a general angler. I'm not a big turn rocks over kind of guy. Um, most of the mayfly nymphs are f- fairly similar. And I, I typically tend to go a little smaller than I think. I find fish are more apt to take a fly that's a little too small than they are the one that's a little too big. Mm. And so, you know, if I see mayflies, then I'll kind of compare but, you know, I feel like you can almost go anywhere and throw out a 14 or a 16 and you're in the ballpark for mayflies. So that's um, 14 or 16. That's the size of the fly. Size hook. Yeah. yeah. And so I'll also, um, I'll tie my pheasant tails or my mayfly nymphs uh, on some different hooks. So I might tie, it might be a size 14 hook, but it might be a 2X long hook. So it's a little longer because the shape of the swimming mayflies are going to be a little longer than the the crawling mayflies. They'll be a little shorter and stubbier. So just getting a little bit of different profile, I think really helps with those fish, um, helps while fishing. So the other thing is, is fish aren't really that great at seeing They're Everything's going to be a little blurry, you know, especially if the water's colored up. So, you know, we get a lot of people get way into it and they want to, you know, they'll put 
three pheasant tail fibers on to match the the three pheasant tails and it's like it's at that at the point you get to that size fish probably really aren't seeing that you know and now if that makes you more confident in that fly i'm all for it you know but i'm i like to tie flies that are really fast for myself that i can tie them quickly i can tie a bunch of them and i can tie a bunch of different versions of them um really quickly but if i show up on a river i'm gonna typically in the morning i'm gonna throw on nymphs as the day moves on if i start seeing bugs on the water then i'll start throwing dry flies i like to throw parachute flies because they sit a little lower in the water and sometimes you can't get away with this maybe your water's a little too turbulent and it'll swamp those flies but i like to throw parachute flies because they'll hang in the water a little bit so they'll look like a fish or a mayfly that maybe is uh crippled or just emerging Right. Um, and you'll get a lot of that. And so there's some work out there that actually suggests that most of the bugs that a trout is eating is an emerger. And mm-hmm. a lot of times if you're on the water and you watch for a rise, you'll see these fish come up and you won't see the nose actually break out of the surface. You'll just see kind of their back and then them go down. And that's what they're doing is they're eating those emergers. And I've had a lot of success to throwing an emerger um, eight to 10 inches away from a, an actual dry fly. And catching fish on that, too. And you'll see that dry fly get pulled down. Sure. And the other thing is that uh, fish that are targeting emergers tend to stay in a lane and be fairly rhythmic. So if there's a consistent flow of insects coming past them, then they'll rise. And then three or four or five or eight or 15 seconds mm-hmm. will go by. And then they'll rise again. And I've, I've had some extremely fun days. And I've casted at fish hundreds of times before I finally caught them. And it was just knowing where that window was. And it helps if there's actual bugs coming down in a line and you can kind of see that conveyor belt. Yeah. And you just put yours in the line and hope that that's the one they grab. And sometimes they'll do a little double take. They'll come up and grab a fly. And if there's another one real close. Yeah. But you just find their window and try to get that timing. And, you know, you'll get them eventually. And if you're having trouble, you know, you can always change to a smaller fly. And that seems to be what, what helps me is I, if they're rejecting that particular fly, I'll change to a smaller fly. And so is a pheasant tail, like, is that, is that the best may, mayfly nymph out there? I don't know if I'd say it's the best. It's, it's just one of those classics that's been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, people fish it. It's it kind of the way you tie it. It just kind of looks like it has the gills on it. So it's a little fuzzy. You know, it's not necessarily the best. I think hare's ears are great, mm-hmm. um, partly because they can look like just about anything else as well. Yep. You know, if you've got a good yellow sally stonefly hatch going on, they can look like those. They can look like a caddis fly. And so I think that's a great fly to throw if if you don't know what fish you're beating on. But, you know, it's also good for mayfly hatches. So, Do you like a bead head on a hare's ear? I do. I put beads on almost everything. So kind of a junkie that way i guess i don't fish a lot of flies unweighted unless it, this situation really calls for it i feel like i can pretty well fish a bead almost anywhere mm-hmm. uh, the one thing i will do is depending on if the trout are really picky on the stream if it's a really highly pressured river uh i might go away from a gold bead uh, or something really flashy and try to really tone that fly back i know you like real natural flies yep and that's what i'll gravitate towards if the fish are being picky uh, they're making some really cool beads out there now. They're like mottled brown mm-hmm. and they're not shiny. They're matte colored mm-hmm. and they're making some real cool beads out there right now that are, that are cool to use for that. And 
you know, not gold wire, you use something else for a ribbing and just tone it back, make it really dull. Because uh, if you look at a, a mayfly, they're not flashy. You know, one of the big flies out there that the competition guys are using is the Frenchie, and it's got a pink collar on it. It's a great, it's a great fly, but there's no mayfly in the world out there that has a pink collar. Sure. You know, and it's just something to attract fish. But I think fish learn after they're in pressured systems that, you know, bright colors and stuff mean, mean no go. Uh, there was a, the Teton River in Idaho, there was a study done on Yellowstone cutthroat trout there that they were being caught on an average nine times a season. Wow. And so fish can definitely learn once you're being caught that often. And so, um, but when you go back to classical conditioning, those fish still have to eat to live. And so they're still getting rewarded by eating something, but they're getting rewarded for eating the dull bugs, not the bright flashy ones. And so if fish are being pressured, I'll switch to that. Otherwise I, I fish quite a few bright things just to get the fish's attention around here. Our fish don't tend to be as picky. So it's more about getting their attention and getting them to come investigate it. So. Sure. Now you also own a company called six foot flies. Yeah. And, um, explain to me what six foot is. Uh, and so six foot is a name from a Creek on the lower Grand Ronde river. It's one of the last kind of good camps on, on a big float that's real popular around here. So that's what I named the, the company after, but I've been tying flies since I started fly fishing essentially. And I tie more every single year than I can possibly fish myself. So I ended up giving a lot of flies away. And so I decided to start kind of funding my, my habit through, through a business and started tying flies for people. And trying to sell the guides and people in the area and got a few things going on. So, and that's been real fun. So I'm building that up over the last year. So you'll, you can sell selections of flies or you can sell custom flies. Yeah. So I, a lot of my, a lot of my business is people just coming to me and saying, Hey, I'm going here. Or I'm going there. Can you figure something out for me? And I'm glad to do that. Provide people information on what I think they should fish there, that type of thing. But I, I'll also take an order of whatever anybody wants to, to have. I tie saltwater flies. Um, you fished Belize this year. Yeah, I fished Belize this year and had a little bit of success. It was tough. We focused on permits, so it got real rough. Why would you do that? <laughs> oh, I don't, get, well, I don't so, get the permit thing. So have you, ever, have you ever been on a trout stream and you can see the fish and you can see them feeding on dry flies? And you spend hours out there throwing flies at them and you can just not get them to eat. And they'll come up and they'll look at it. And then they'll go back down and it's just the, the adrenaline when you can see them come into that fly and that's permit fishing all the time. If you, okay. if you can find them and it's like, it's some of the most fun you can have without catching fish. Yeah. And we found a lot of fish down there and it was, I didn't catch one and it was so addicting and I'm ready to go back again. It's, it's like, yeah, it's just like, I've had some awesome days trout fishing and that's just what it reminds me of is throwing dry flies at fish that you know are there and you just trying to solve the puzzle of getting them to eat. Do you need to bring an extra rod so that when you get pissed and break one over your knee, cause <laughs> you know, the 97th permit just refused you? <laughs> uh-huh. Probably, yeah. probably be a good idea. Yeah, yeah. We had a few rods in the boat and the, um, I, I'll, probably on my Instagram later this year, post some uh, temper tantrums that were, <laughs> that were thrown um, during the course of that. Uh, it's, it's, you read about it and you hear about it being frustrating and you're like, and you're like, Oh, I'm a pretty good angler. I'll be all right. And you go down there and you're like, Oh no, it's just like I read. Huh. So, so a permit will take bait really well. Scent is huge for them. Mm -hmm. uh Oh, we got Johnny law pulling up here. <laughs> one of our uh, one of our good friends and uh, and fellow fly fishing guide 
whenever he sees your truck and my truck in the same place, he's got to join in on the oh. party. So they'll take bait really well from what I hear. And I feel like if I went permit fishing that I would throw a, a crab out there and just get the poison out and catch a permit. And then if it was a good experience, I might try and catch one on a fly. But, you know, I'm a, I'm a fish to hand kind of guy. Sure. But I mean, I, I can go out and throw bait on the bottom of Hell's Canyon and catch a sturgeon and it's going to be way more exciting than catching a permit on bait. Right. Like, yeah. But like it's, cut- it's about solving the puzzle. Like yeah. it's a problem. I'm a, yeah. that's, you know, I, you know, fly tying's the same way. There's, you know, you want to make something look a certain way and you got to solve the puzzle. You, you get on Instagram and you see these guys tying stuff and you want to figure out how to do that too. And so fishing's the same thing for me. It's like, you're trying to solve the puzzle of, of what, what gets these fish to eat. So it's a, it's a problem solving challenge. Yeah, that's true. You know, I often tell clients when it comes to fly fishing that the only skill they need to master is enjoying it. All the other skills, whether it's picking the right fly or casting or hook setting or fighting yeah. a fish, whatever, like that only gets you to the point where you can enjoy what you're doing because nobody's fly fishing to feed themselves, right? It's This is about recreation. It's about enjoyment. And it's about the challenge. It's different things for different people. For me... I need to catch fish to enjoy <laughs> myself. <laughs> but I am willing to go through some struggle and challenge to make that happen. Sure. Well, and we had the benefit that we'd go out there and struggle with permit for hours. And then at the end of the day, we'd hit the flats where the bonefish were and we'd go catch a few bonefish. And so we, we didn't go all day without catching fish. We were finding fish and we stuck fish every day. It was just so you still get that gratification. That you need, so We've got Paul Pagano with us. So we're sitting here talking about Belize. Paul, you've got a timeshare in Belize. You've been down there how many times? I think three or four now. Yeah. At least three. I'd have to kind of go back. But yeah, we've got a place on uh, that we go to on Ambergris Key, just out of San Pedro there. Every couple of years and trade it off sometimes for some other getaways. And you own Flyside Angling, mm-hmm. guiding service here. Yep. Trout, steelhead. Trout in, uh, you know, early summer, steelhead in the fall. Basses. Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes some August, basses. Yeah. We'll guide, uh, well, the Wallowa River, and then we'll go down to the Grand Ronde, both in the Oregon and Washington section in the fall for steelhead. So. We're over here uh, talking about mayflies on this episode primarily, and and then the the nymphs and the dries that we like to throw. What's, what's your go-to mayfly nymph? I would say probably the the Frenchie. <laughs> the Frenchie. I could have called that yeah. all day. Why? What do you like about it? If you tie it right, it sinks quick in heavy heavy water like in June. You want that tungsten bead on there. And for whatever reason, they just key in on that thing. I don't know if it's the hot spot on the tip, but it's simple to tie. It doesn't take very long, and it just works. Yeah. I've, I don't think I throw them. I don't think I own one. I'll throw two or three at a time. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, yeah. I'll so if, if you're going to throw three Frenchies, do you need three strike indicators? Only if a certain guide is on the river. <laughs> <laughs> Who shall not be named. <laughs> oh. So the way the way I look at a Frenchie is it's basically a, a quick tie version of a pheasant tail with a hot spot. Yep. That's so, all and it it's, you know, on... That tends to be, like I was talking earlier, the route that I go, because I like things that you can tie real fast. So, yeah, um, I don't, you know, a lot of times flies got a bunch of extra crap on them that you don't really need. 
and Frenchie's kind of a great example of that. So Paul, you'll throw big ones for steelhead and stuff too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, oversized for sure, and they key in on them. And you can do all kinds of stuff with them if you want. You can put a collar on them. You know, if you got a client that's maybe not the best at dead drifting, and all of a sudden they're starting to accidentally swing, you know, throw a soft tackle on top of that thing. Do you tie any with the soft tackle? I'll tie them with some CDC sometimes. Yeah. Gotcha. A CDC looks really good. Makes it look kind of like a translucent egg sometimes. Yeah. Huh. Well, and sometimes that CDC, if you tie it dense enough, it can trap a little bit of air and you get that effect of that fish swinging or that nymph swinging up to the top to hatch. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so when you get those guys that, that maybe can't get a great dead drift and that, that fly starts swinging up a little bit, it has that effect of that nymph rising up to hatch. So Yeah. We're going to have to do an entire separate episode on um, dead drifting and how it's not a real thing at some point. <laughs> but it's definitely something that we always try to achieve when we're when we're presenting a nymph, um, at least in the first two thirds. The- it's like traveling at the speed of light. It's not really, yeah, it's not really possible, but it's what you're trying to achieve. Yep. How about uh mayfly merger? Pretty yeah. much any soft tackle. I'd have to just kind of look at my box and go, what do I want to say would be my go-to? I don't really have anything. It's kind of what's on my mind at the time. Yeah. yeah. What about you, Kyle? Uh, I like to throw comparaduns. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Because they, they ride real low in the water, and if it's a little bit turbulent, they're they're going to ride even a little lower. Yeah. And so I'll throw a comparadon because they just they don't have a hackle on them or anything. It's just that air floating them. Mm-hmm. And so, but again, the, I think the parachute Adams kind of doubles as an adult and kind of a swamped merger at the I, same time. I so. agree with that. In the top three. Yeah. And do you uh, like a high-vis parachute Adams? Uh, it depends. Again, if, if there's some surface the surface of the water's rough then i'll go high vis if it's if it's really clean and fish can really see what's going on then i try to stay as natural as possible gotcha for sure have you ever tried throwing the ones that have uh, the little trapped air bubble tied into them sort of like the they're like a micro thing on a bobber no i haven't not with those i've i've tried tying some closed cell foam in the back of some flies that yeah. worked pretty well but once it gets beat up a few times and they all the bubbles break and they yeah. don't float anymore so gotcha and then for dries paul your your parachute atoms parachute atoms all day yeah you know the the tough thing about a parachute atoms for for me is that you need pretty slow water to be able to get that thing to actually present mm-hmm. um and you yeah. you sort of need a practiced hand to get that fly to turn over and land correctly mm-hmm. if it hits the water going fast and not just floating down onto it um it's going to wad up and be sideways and mm-hmm. it definitely takes a skilled hand to be able to utilize that fly correctly in the right piece of water well and something i i try to do is we talked earlier about that fish having a window yep and not trying to get these real long drifts you know we're always out there trying to get these super long drifts and cover as much water as we can but if you know where that fish is going to be and that's something I always try to do when I'm fishing is pick a spot like that's where that fish is going to be and fish that spot real well and s- instead of trying to get this super long drift. And I think it's especially important for new fly anglers that have trouble mending and getting those long drifts, especially it's hard to mend a dry fly like that. 
but and just plan on only having a six foot drift and then just working that water down nice and slow and you can just do short drifts and you and then you get real quality short drifts and you just expect that fish to be in that spot yeah. instead of trying to drift it way out and feed and line out down below you and Dunk it. um yeah and trying to gink up your leader too it's i mean it's so simple yeah. and most people don't do it you know i get clients that only gink up their fly and it, it might be riding a little weird or getting dunked a lot or fish are slapping it with their tails or whatever and they're casting too much or you're in that kind of high spring runoff where things are just choppier and quicker and you're moving faster and your fly is a little bit more wet than usual it's not that slower late summer water yeah ging up that line a little bit don't be afraid to you know help it ride better i'm on the other side on that one are you yeah just because um when i was in college i was doing this thing where i was swimming with flies to try and get video of them it was like when these very first before gopro or anything like the very first um waterproof handheld video cameras came out so i was trying to see one how many fish were actually hitting a nymph on a drift and when i was doing this when i was filming this stuff when i was filming dry fly presentations from underneath if we put any type of floating on the line Mm -hmm. it shows up in big blotchy shadows really um it is super super visible so that was the first time that I started using fluorocarbon for dry fly leaders because fluorocarbon is a little bit more dense and it will sink. But as long as the fly is still staying on the surface, then it was actually a lot better presentation. But you would just see these, you know, this line of, of shadows um, if that leader or tippet was on the surface. I got a hard lesson in that one time fishing a river with, uh, had some great mayfly and caddis hatches and I could see fish out there in this big flat run. And I was sight fishing to them and I could see them feeding and they had no interest in my flies. And it was sunny and you could see my line on the flip, my float, uh, not my floral, my mono floating on top of the water. And mm-hmm. it was just plain as day, even 40 feet away, you could see it. And I know that's what was keeping those fish from eating. And I went back sometime later and started fishing floral to where it just sinks. And again, then you're reducing your drift because eventually that floral is going to pull that down then it's under the water and and that fly's sitting on top and it looks like it's the only thing out there so sidebar on that i usually only do that or have the guys do that when the water's up a little bit and moving quick and yeah they only got a small window of visibility anyway um i have seen that i've had seen this uh line stack up on the surface a little bit more but i've never actually got under the water and looked at it so that's a good uh good info to have yeah Yeah. it's it's upsetting honestly (laughs) Um, i'll take your word for it especially seeing how many fish run up and eat a nymph um, without showing anything to the strike indicator on the surface, just grab it, drift backwards with it, spit it back out, and there's no indication that that ever occurred. And I think a lot, a lot of times, and I know this happens to me. If I'm humble, I'll take credit for it. But uh, anyways, you go to start a cast, and there was nothing going on with your strike indicator, and you're like, boom, there's a fish, and you're like, oh, look at me, I'm so good at setting the hook. I caught yeah. that fish just now. Yeah, yeah. And in reality, it's like. That fish was not going to be there if, uh, you know, if you just let the drift continue or swing on out. Copy that. I don't know. It's always fun to get a bonus fish, though. Um, what else we want to talk about, boys? What have you been tying, Kyle? What have I been tying? Yeah. Humpies. A lot of humpies, huh? Yeah. Quarantine ties? Did you come I, up with I any got new a, names? Any uh, variants? No. I got a real nice chunk of moose fur from the Dotsons. Oh, sweet. So I've been tying humpies with that, but. 
So if folks want to learn more about Flyside Angling, where do they go? Flysideangling.com or Instagram, Flyside Angling. And if they want to go fish with Flyside Angling and show up with some flies, which would be like a really cool thing of a client <laughs> to do, how do they get flies, Kyle? Sixfootflies.com. You can either order off my website. I have a few things on there. You can custom order from me. So I could I could know nothing and call you and be like, hey, I booked a trout trip with Flyside Angling and we're launching on the Wallawa on June 22nd and we're going to fish for two days. I'll set um, you up. That's it, right? Yeah. Tell me what you're willing to spend, how many flies you want. You know, maybe if you have a preference in the type, the way you fish, maybe call Paul and say, hey, you know, what what should I have him tie up? But yeah, for the most part, I'll tie whatever you want. And to a point, I'm willing to do a little research and even uh, put together some documents for for you to tell you how to fish them if you're new and you, if you don't have a real good idea what you're doing. So I've done that for a few, few people. So if I'm going to go tiger fishing in Tanzania, can I be like, hey, man, I'm going to go try and catch tiger fish in Tanzania. Can you make me some flies? Sure. Yeah. Right? Because you are a fish biologist and you understand both fish and aquatic insects yeah. and you've got the power of the internet. Mind you, I've never tied a fly for that. So <laughs> um, you can figure it out. Google it. But, you know, I could, I'll figure it out. If there's too many things on YouTube. I can figure it out. So, yeah, I think um, that's pretty incredible. I buy, I'll do the research. I buy all my flies from you. And I love it. They hold up really well. And I, I think it's super cool. My so. fly tying bench is now a, uh, basically a, a Bill's desk. Now that Kyle started six foot flies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't have time of the day, man. Not yeah. peak season anyway. It's nice to be able to call them, come out to the porch, leave them yeah. 20 bucks. Yeah. It's a good deal. We need that around here because fly shop's not always open. Might not always have what you want. So well, it's not just around here. I mean, yeah, everywhere. It's wherever you want to go. Kyle can hook you up with the flies to go there and have a good time and uh, seek success the way you define it. We did really well this this last season, trout season, on your uh, your Prince variant. I think you were tying it with a tungsten head, black tungsten head. Yeah, prince. so I tie I tie a started tying. It's just a Prince nymph, but it's all black with a matte black head, and I call it the Dark Prince. That thing was a killer, and this so it's year. just a stonefly imitation, really, mm-hmm. and it's just but it's all black with mm-hmm. black hackle, black head, black biots, everything. It's just pure black. What if I'm remembering? We're using a uh, silver or a gold rib on that. Black. <laughs> that was black too. Uh-huh. Black okay. wire. Right. And so, so the great thing about that fly is it right, it's yeah. got a lot of contrast in the water. So you know you're not going to miss a big black thing coming down the river at you, and it's not going to blend in with everything eats everything it. else. So, yeah. so what's the ideal light condition to throw a dark fly like that? You always hear dark day, dark fly. You know, bright day, bright fly. Sure. I don't know. I, I used it every time we were down there this summer. Every day, sure. whether it was cloudy, you know, bright, sunny, you know, low light, whatever, didn't matter, and it was effective. Nice. Yeah. Um, I don't think I have any of those. I should probably order some. Yeah. I think I have a bunch. How long does it take? Because Paul's, Paul's the one that calls me up and's like, hey, you got any of these? <laughs> yeah. I don't get the custom yeah. orders from Paul's. Like, <laughs> I get me the a Chevron. I, yeah. <laughs> Shh, he, I get the <laughs> I've got a, I've got a client tomorrow. You got any flies? <laughs> yeah, the last minute clients. Yeah, out of- he comes, comes in, looks at my box and goes, give me those. How long does it take you to tie that up? You're getting pretty quick, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, most nymphs, it's a five minute tie. Five minutes. Yeah. Or less. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you guys both very much. 
Appreciate Thank your you. time. Or let me drop in. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. I would also like to thank my guests for sharing their knowledge. This episode was edited by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. If you enjoyed the show, I encourage you to share it with a friend and subscribe. You can find photos and more content on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast. We will be back later with a new episode on caddisflies. Talk to you then and happy fishing.